Chris Justice is your guy before, during, after the show. You'll want to reach out to Chris after we're done here. You can, one 821 5900 Have a polite and relaxed conversation about your matters when it comes to employment law, whether you're an employee, employee, or otherwise. Give Chris a call, help at employmentlawyer.ca. But yeah, here right now. Let's get on with it, pal. The duty to accommodate, understanding this. Let's get into this one. When does an employee have the right to be accommodated? Yeah, so this is a very important topic, the duty Mm -hmm. to accommodate. This is one of the, I'll say, most fundamental obligations or important obligations an employer has under employment law towards its own employees. And as far as when uh, does an employer have the right to be accommodated, or employee rather, uh, when an employee is generally unable to perform their job due to, for example, maybe religious reasons or as a result of a disability, whether it's physical or psychological. Um, another thing that comes up is childcare commitments, or there might be other constraints, uh, most often related to some protected ground under human rights legislation. The employer has to provide assistance to that employee, has to accommodate that employee. Um, so there's therefore many situations, I think, where you can go to your employer and ask them for this help. Uh, if you're not sure, I think if you're an employee and you're not sure what you're asking for, if that requires accommodation or something that your employer might be obligated to accommodate, um, you'll, you'll definitely want to speak to a lawyer because there mm-hmm. are si- certain situations where it might be a matter of your choice rather than your need. Um, and if it's just simply a matter of preference that you want to do X instead of Y, um, then, then there's definitely going to be a bit different of an analysis to it. Um, but if your accommodation request relates to, for example, something to do with your human rights and you have to have that accommodation in order to perform the main duties of your role, um, then your employer is going to have to take this request seriously and, and do what it can to help you out. Um, like uh, Sometimes it's important also for employees in these situations to understand that providing documentation in support of the request could be very helpful. Um, so, so in the case of a medical disability, for example, okay. um, you know, an employee may want to get a medical note from their doctor, uh, which sets out the restrictions or limitations they have, and then actually provide that to their employer and say, here's the support for my doctor. You know, it says that I can't lift more than 30 pounds or I can't be seated for more than five hours or whatnot. And, and here's the recommended suggestions, you know, can you do something for me? And then at that point, of course, the onus will shift to the employer And it's going to be a lot harder, I think, for the employer to skirt their obligations in a scenario like that versus someone who might just come to them and say, hey, look, I'd just rather work from home uh, indefinitely. You know, can I do that? Um, Because I know that's actually, you know, thinking of topical things nowadays, something a lot of employees are wanting to do, uh, given that they've worked from home for quite a while since the pandemic started. Um, But that doesn't necessarily mean they have the indefinite right to demand that their employer do that. So. It's going to come down to a case-by-case basis, uh, as always, um, but these are just some of the main examples of where employees do have the right to be accommodated. If we're to flip this uh, the other way around and look at it from an employer's standpoint, is there a threshold? How far does that employer have to go to accommodate an employee? Right. So, of course, the employer is expected to do everything it can within reason uh, to accommodate the employee And the employer doesn't have to make uh, accommodations to the employee if that accommodation or if that uh, those efforts, I should say, uh, end up creating undue hardship. So the phrase undue hardship is 
sort of difficult to to nail down precisely. Again, it's going to come down to a case by case basis. Mm -hmm. But if the employer does go through or can prove that it would go through what's called undue hardship as a result of the accommodation, then that may be one instance where an employer um, can sort of draw the line. Um, but having said that, in my experience, I found it a lot to be the case where the employer may say that it's an undue hardship, but actually it's just an inconvenience. Um, right. It may not be necessarily the biggest burden on them, um, and they just are simply phrasing it in a different way. I think the vast majority of situations I've come across um, that, that involve employers claiming there's undue hardship uh, most often fail. So if you're an employee and you're being told, well, this just is too much for us to accommodate, then, you know, I'd say your your warning bells should be going off to some extent. And before maybe responding to something like that, you want to get in touch with a lawyer. Um, like I, for example, had a very specific situation where an employer uh, wanted the employee to work 40 hours a week as they normally had been. And the employee was asking for an accommodation um, by reducing the 40-hour work week to a 37-hour work week for a certain period of time. And the employer said, nope, absolutely not. You either come here working 100% of what you did, 100% of the hours, or we're just not going to have you. That's just too much of a, an undue hardship for us to, to incur. And that's just simply not going to be the case in most cases. Um, so there is a line, but in my experience, I find it's very hard for employers to, to reach that. They really have to show uh, the true burden that they'd face. And if you're an employer and you're deciding to tell an employee that it would be undue hardship, just like an employee should talk to an, a lawyer before they talk to the employer, you as the employer should probably consult with the lawyer as well and make sure that you actually have all those pieces in place to make an argument like that. What if, you know, or can an employee or what can an employee do if the employer does not provide uh, leveled up accommodation? It's not all they need. Or they flat out get fired for asking and they keep pushing and their, their employer says, okay, out you go. I told you I couldn't do it. So you're done. Yeah. So, so as I was saying just a second ago, if your employer is coming to you and saying, look, we can't give you the accommodation you're looking for. I mean, if, if they can make that test of undue hardship, that's one thing. But if it's just sort of an excuse or, or something doesn't quite add up and they just refuse to provide the proper accommodation, then you as an employee can argue, of course, that they failed to accommodate you. And if the accommodation that you're requesting was, uh, for example, on the basis of a medical disability or maybe you have childcare commitments that required you to be away from your job for a certain period of time, and again, your employer doesn't have a, a great reason to deny that accommodation, then you as an employee uh, could take the position that, as I say, they failed to accommodate you, they've arguably discriminated against you based on a protected ground under human rights legislation, and that, in essence, this amounts to a termination at law. And so, in the case where proper accommodation isn't given, and you're perhaps just being told to wait until you can tell them you're ready to come back to 100%. Um, I mean, you do technically have that option if you want, but just know that you don't have to wait and it might actually be in your better interest to take action sooner rather than later. In the second scenario where you're actually let go for asking for accommodation, yeah. I would like to think that most employers don't do this. Uh, that would be an incredibly risky thing to do and, and essentially just raise all the same warning bells and trigger all the same entitlements that... Uh, a legitimate failure to accommodate would, um, but actually going that extra step and terminating specifically on the basis of, of an accommodation request or on the basis of someone's disability, for example, 
I, I can imagine that's only going to open up a huge can of worms for that employer. And, and yeah, they're going to be in some hot water for sure. Anytime you want to add to the show and chime in, uh, feel free to do so. Let's get to this termination pop quiz. Question number one, what are the four, four main factors considered when determining how much severance someone should be paid? What do you think? Yeah, so the four main factors, actually a lot of people think uh, that there might be three main factors. Uh, and those first three factors would be the length of someone's employment with their employer, uh, the age of the employee at the time that they are terminated and offered the severance, and the position that, that the employee holds. And so uh, the fourth actual uh, factor is the availability of similar employment. You know, what is the economy like? What is the industry like? Uh, how long should it essentially take you to find work? And, and that's what the whole premise around severance is based on generally is, is how long should it take someone in your situation, assuming you're making reasonable efforts to go out and find another job. And so things like your age may very well come down as a factor. You know, if oh, yeah. you're 60 years of age and you're let go, there's probably a good chance you're going to have a lot harder time finding yep. a job and that you're going to suffer some prejudice. If you are with a company for 30 years, for example, and you've now been let go in 2022, well, maybe, you know, you don't have the best technological skills or, or you clearly have no idea what maybe the job market's like uh, because you've been out of it for so long. And, and so longer service employees may actually take longer to adjust to um, having no job and, and trying to find a job. You know, they may have to update the resume. They may have to get some of their skills updated technology-wise or otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, so length of employment, you know, that's partly why that's another um, factor. And then the position you hold, of course, is relevant because, of course, if you lose your job and you're offered severance and you're now out there trying to find another job, there's going to be a huge difference between finding a job that might be, you know, for a CEO position uh, than someone working at McDonald's flipping burgers. Right. Um, you know, there might be a huge interview process for, for a job that, that's similar to the one you lost. And that may just in and of itself take them longer time to find work. So this is some of the rationale that goes behind some of these factors as far as why they're important and why they um, often dictate how much severance someone should get. Um, but uh, those are the four main factors. And uh, people need to understand, because this is another misconception uh, when it comes to severance, is that you're not, as an employee, necessarily entitled to one or two weeks for every year of service. It's usually much more than that, oftentimes a month or more for every year of service. And again, this goes back to the factors. Um, so these are definitely things people should consider before looking at a severance package and maybe assuming that what's being offered is fair and reasonable. And you can always reach out to Chris, by the way, and get some sort of assessment or at least get your bearings as far as this stuff is concerned. And even before that, pocketemploymentlawyer.ca, tons of info there, and the severance pay calculator, which does exactly that. It's free, it's anonymous, and more than 2 million people have used it. Again, pocketemploymentlawyer.ca, feel free to use that, or help at employmentlawyer.ca. We'll continue. This is the Employment Law Show. All right, right back at it. John Scholes here. Chris Justice, courtesy of Sam Firu to Mark and LLP, the most positively reviewed law firm in the country, ready to go with another edition of the uh, Employment Law Show. We have got lots to get through today. I know, Chris, you got a couple things off the top you want to talk about, but as we get deeper into it, we're going to get to understanding the duty to accommodate. What does that all mean? We will uh, we'll drill down on it, and if we have time in between the phone calls and everything else, we get the termination pop quiz, asking Chris a bunch of questions and see what the answers will be on the other side. But, yeah, it is time for you to uh, come on board and ask your questions when you pick up that phone, when you're inquisitive, when you ask questions, you're doing so and helping thousands of others because we all wonder the same things. 
if we don't know too much about employment law, so it's helpful for everybody. You can always reach out to Chris at help at employmentlawyer.ca, help at employmentlawyer.ca or one 821 5900 But that is enough of me babbling on. Chris, what do you got for us for the uh, the week that was, brother? What's happening? Yeah, so um, thank you as always. Uh, This week, or in the recent weeks anyways, there have been a lot of things going on. Uh, Two main uh, things that I'm going to talk about today, uh, the first being relating to layoffs, and the second being relating to uh, the federal government lifting its mandatory vaccine Mm -hmm. requirements in some respects. Uh, So first, with respect to the layoffs, um, I mean, ever since March of 2020, I've been dealing with layoffs in the context of covid Uh, And now it seems like fast forwarding over two years later, we've got a number of companies performing some mass layoffs, uh, including Netflix. Uh, We've got Novartis Canada, which I think is a pharmaceutical company. And then there's another company in the news called Aurora Cannabis, uh, who are also conducting some mass layoffs. So I think it's important. uh, It may sound like a broken record at times, but uh, I think it's important to talk about layoffs and what they actually mean. Uh, and what options employees in these cases have. So uh, in this particular case or these cases, whether you're a Netflix employee or a Novartis employee or or someone along those lines, and you've been in a situation where you've been laid off or you're being told that you're being laid off, uh, first of all, as an employee, you need to understand that generally speaking, layoffs are not allowed. Uh, They're they're illegal, um, despite many beliefs. And even if the layoff is for financial reasons, or even if your employer is saying that they're laying you off um, for something that's not necessarily in bad faith, uh, Mm. that does not give them the unilateral right to do so. And so uh, in situations where an employer says to an employee, listen, we're laying you off. You don't really have any say in the matter. We don't know how long the layoff will be. Um, but we hope to call you back as soon as possible. You know, these are things that are often said in these contexts um, that can very easily constitute a termination at law. And so uh, definitely, if you're in that situation, you don't want to outright say that you agree to the layoff, that you consent to the layoff. You definitely don't want to sign any documents saying that the employer has the right to lay you off. Uh, and you absolutely need to talk with a lawyer first to understand what those rights are. Because if you are one of those individuals who's been laid off, And if that is uh, going to constitute a termination at law, um, you could potentially get upwards of two years of severance as though you were actually terminated without cause. Um, And again, the reason for this is because a layoff, in essence, is something that's usually forced upon you and it basically reduces your wages from whatever it is you were making at that time now to zero. Mm. And you're sort of left to have to perhaps collect EI or figure out what you're going to do from a financial point of view uh, in the meantime. So so it's definitely one of the main reasons why layoffs constitute terminations at law. Now, I, I will just say that there are some situations where companies can lay people off, not to say that's the case in, say, the case of Netflix or Novartis, um, but if you're someone who, for example, is laid off on a seasonal basis because maybe you're a construction worker, uh, that might be a bit different of a situation. Uh, also, I mentioned this before, but if you've signed something, uh, for, for example, an employment agreement that speaks to an employer's ability to lay you off, that could also be a, a potential exception there. So again, all the more reason why you want to contact a lawyer to figure out what your rights are and what factors need to be considered. But don't, again, assume that employers have this unilateral right to do this to you. 
Want to get to your uh, your second topic in just a minute, uh, Chris? But we always uh, bounce to the phones whenever we can. Steve, thanks for hanging on for a moment today. What's uh, what's going on with you? Well, I inherited a huge, huge company, guy. It employs, I don't know, I'm going to say millions of people, buddy. That's just my guess. Um, a few of the people like to fly around on planes, buddy, drinking like like fish and, and spending like $100,000 a year on food. Now, these people, I can't fire them, and they're taking the money to do it, and I can't even control that. Oh, this is our prime minister and our governor general, by the way, but seriously, these people are spending like... Fools, buddy, and we're broke. I don't get it. I can't fire these people. How do I control the spending that these people have? Or do you have an employment law question? I don't know about that. Political question, fine, but we'll move on. So there's always one of those every couple of weeks, Chris. But I don't know if you want to. <laughs> I mean, go ahead and answer that if you want to. Well, but I, I, I don't know. You can try. Yeah, no. I mean, uh, just so I'm clear. So sorry, sir. You were saying that you inherited a huge company. You've got all these employees doing things that you don't want them to do. Yeah. Uh, I'll say from a general perspective, if, if you're an employer or you own a business and you have a lot of employees within that business, maybe that you've inherited, uh, that you want certain things changed within that business. The first question you have to ask is, of course, how were things in the past? You know, it may be the case that these employees uh, have, as part of the terms of their employment, the ability to uh, expense certain items. Uh, or the ability to just perform certain actions. So if that's been ingrained for many, many years that predate you, it's generally going to be hard for any employer to just all of a sudden go to their employee and say, we're switching everything up. And and you can do that, but normally if you're an employer and you're going to come into a company, into a new picture, and decide to switch things up, and if you are switching things up in a very dramatic way, you can't normally get away with just telling somebody on a Monday that things are going to be changing radically on Tuesday. You're going to either have to give that person a lot of notice to say, look, mm-hmm. things like this can't continue going on this way. Changes are going to have to be made, but we're going to give you a lot of time ahead of time to decide whether that's something you want to do. And these changes are going to take effect, let's say, a year from now. But if you're thinking, I, I just want to come in, I want to uh, change things drastically, I want to remove the ability for these employees to do X, Y, and Z, but I don't want to give them any notice, well, then you risk being in a situation where your employee might come to a lawyer and say, my employer has dra- dramatically changed the terms of my employment. I have no notice. What can I do? And I may end up telling that person that they have the possibility to claim a constructive dismissal, which is when a significant change to someone's employment happens. So giving notice to employees when making changes is huge. And if you're not going to do that, then you may unfortunately have to cut ties and, and terminate their employment on a without cause basis. And you know, depending on the employee we're talking about, your obligations may actually be quite high. Um, but there really isn't uh, too many other options other than those. You spun that into something remarkable. Way to go! But uh, get to your uh, get to your uh, get to your second story, Chris. What else you got going on? Yeah. So the second story I mentioned had to do with vaccine mandates. Uh, the federal government suspending or lifting its mandatory vaccination requirements. So I just want to clarify because there's a lot of misconceptions out there mm-hmm. as it relates to federal employees, and I think there's a difference between the public sector, and then federally regulated employees who work in the private sector. Because um, a lot of people think that if they're an employee, they work in the federal sector, that at least at some point in time, there was an actual government mandate that required them to get vaccinated. And that's simply not true. Now, if we're talking about specific public sectors, uh, maybe perhaps about airlines, um, then, then yes, there were some laws that were in place at some point. But for the most part, most people, whether they're provincially regulated employees or federally regulated employees, 
um, actually were not subject to any government mandate that required them to get vaccinated. So if you're an individual who uh, either has been uh, laid off or suspended in the federal context for not complying with a COVID policy, uh, you'll definitely want to get in touch with us uh, because there's a very good chance that um, even if your employer is saying they have legal backing to do what they did, um, there's very likely the odds that they don't and that you would actually be owed severance um, for that suspension or for that termination. Um, now, if I just switch gears to the public sector, uh, yes, these, these requirements were recently lifted uh, in many of these sectors in this area. And so if you're an employee who perhaps has been suspended or has been put on some form of a leave of absence in the federally regulated public sector, um, you may in fact be recalled back to work either already or in the near future, given the, the update in terms of suspending the, the requirements in this context. And so it's important if you're someone who's been off on a leave and you're being approached by your employer and being asked to come back into the work now that these requirements have been lifted. Um, first of all, you have to know if you're a unionized employer or not. And if you are, contact your union and your union should be able to help you out. But if you're not unionized and you're being told to come back, you might actually have a claim for back pay. You might have a claim for both back pay and severance moving forward. So don't also assume that you have to go back. Um, but that's also a possibility as well. Um, sometimes employers may not want to call you back and you want to be reinstated to your job, especially after hearing these vaccine requirements have been lifted. Mm -hmm. And that's a unique aspect of some federally regulated employees. They have that ability um, through the legislation to actually get reinstated. Right. Um, so there's a lot of options for these federal employees, whether it's reinstatement, back pay, severance pay. Um, and then, of course, depending on if they're unionized or not. But if you're, any, uh, if you're an employee in this situation or you've been impacted by uh, the mandates or um, are being affected by the suspension of these mandates, uh, definitely give us a call because um, just like employees who've been laid off, you're likely going to have a lot of options and potentially be owed quite significant amounts of severance. Let's get a quick call in here before our first break. That'll be James. James, thanks for standing by. What's, uh, what's your question? Hi there. So um, thanks for taking my call. My question was, if, if I um, agreed to give my employee a severance, let's say for six months pay, right? And during those six months, he finds another job. So is, is that severance, like I have to pay him out six months regardless? Or great, the severance ends when he finds a new job? Okay. Yeah, good question. Yeah, no, that is a good question. So, so you're an employer and you've agreed with an employee that you're going to give them six months of severance pay. Um, and you're wondering about the impact of them finding a job uh, has on that situation. So it could, in fact, affect it. It just depends on the deal that you agreed to with your employee. So a lot of times, employers may terminate the employment of an individual and uh, decide to give them, let's say, six months as a lump sum payment. And so the six months will include uh, their minimum obligations under the law or their minimum uh, entitlements under the law. Um, but if you agree to just give someone a lump sum payment six months free and clear and they sign the papers, then there's going to be um, practically no way that you can go back and then maybe recoup some of that money if you later on find out they've found a job. But if you're an employer who may be worried or fearful, for lack of a better word, uh, that your employee is going to find work quite quickly and, and you don't sort of want to be left with egg on your face having paid them out, let's say, a year of pay only to discover they found a job within five months, then you have the option of structuring a severance payout on what's called a salary continuance basis. And you can, as a condition of that payment, um, put in there something along the lines of, you know, we'll pay you six months, but 
if you end up finding a job before that six months ends, we have the ability to claw back some of what is remaining in terms of the payment. So, so there are ways that you as an employer can protect yourself if that were to happen. Although I want to be clear that under no circumstances will you be able to get away with getting um, rid of them for less than the absolute bare minimums they're entitled to. It's just a question of once you give those bare minimums, how can you sort of, I guess, control the additional amounts of severance that are given and that salary continues with a clawback is one way. So um, perhaps if you want to give us a call, uh, I could very easily take you through some of the steps and options you would have to perhaps protect yourself as an employer in those situations. Um, but yeah, they're very good questions. So thanks for that. James, appreciate it. Here's how you move forward with Chris and his team. Do so. More questions, one 855 821 But here and now, we'll continue with the Employment Law Show. Stand by. All righty, back at it, 937. Uh, good to have you along here. And before we get in uh, the, the phone call again, we'll get back into our termination uh, pop quiz. What is the first thing, Chris, the first thing that should be considered when assessing a person's severance? So the, I think the first thing that needs to be looked at or considered, uh, and this is sort of a central theme in a lot of these employment law cases, is somebody's employment agreement. Um, a lot of times at the beginning of someone's employment, they'll sign an agreement uh, that they may have even forgot about because right. many, many years have passed. And, you know, I speak to them and I say, you know, provide me with a copy of your agreement before we can consider, you know, the, the fairness of the severance package. And then there's this hidden termination clause contained in there that, again, they had no idea about um, that speaks to the company's ability to pay out whatever it needs to pay out upon termination. And a lot of times these contracts or these termination clauses essentially say that the company can let you go. Uh, and if it chooses to do so, it can do so by only providing you with the bare minimum entitlements that you're owed at law. And that might be a week or two weeks for every year that you worked. Um, but again, as I said earlier, um, there, there could be very well a, a chance that you'd get months or more than months uh, for every year. But that's the first starting point is the contract. And I will say that even if there is a contract in place, and even if that contract does have a termination provision in it that tries to limit your entitlements to something less than what you might get at common law, uh, you don't want to assume as an employee that you're therefore dead to rights and that this contract uh, essentially uh, limits you to just those bare minimums. Because actually, for the most part, even though these contracts have this type of language in there, the vast majority of these contracts, I would say, are not worded in a way that would actually be considered enforceable. Um, and at least even goes more so for contracts that are particularly dated. So if you're an employee in the situation, contract is the first step. Uh, definitely want to have a, a lawyer review the contract, um, find out if there's a termination clause and what, if any, effect it'll have on your severance payout. Um, so that's that's definitely the, the first thing that should be considered when assessing someone's severance. We hear the terms all the time, termination pay, severance pay, back and forth. Is there a, is there a difference between the two? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, this comes up a lot. You know, I, I someone might be uh, let go, for example, and they're given a termination letter. And in that termination letter, there's these phrases, you know, we're yep. going to give you eight weeks of termination pay. And then if you sign this document, we'll give you another 10 weeks of severance or what have you. And while there is technically some difference between the terms termination pay and severance pay, I don't think it's really helpful for people to get into the weeds as far as, you know, what those terms specifically mean. 
Um, because when it comes to termination of employment, what we care about ultimately is what you're owed. Someone might call it termination pay. Someone might call it severance pay. Sometimes it's called pay in lieu of notice. Um, uh, but with respect to your minimum entitlements, there, again, there might be a distinction. But but uh, people just need to know what they're owed. And, and as you've mentioned earlier in the show, they can access our calculator online to find that. Um, and it's, again, it's not just, you know, is it termination pay or severance? I think just viewing it as how many weeks or how many months am I owed? Mm-hmm. Um, that would be called what you're owed as far as severance. And, and I think that's all that really matters when it comes down to it. So your boss says they're they're letting it go. He says, or, or he or she says, you know, we're letting you go for cause because, uh, I don't know, you missed last month's sales quota, for instance. Um, are you owed any severance in that situation? Is there a threshold to that? Yeah. So just before I get into the sales quota example, uh, anytime your boss comes to you and says, we're letting you go for cause, uh, you immediately need to think that there might be a good chance this for cause is not actually for cause and that it's just a without cause termination being disguised as a for cause termination because if you're terminated without cause then you're you're owed severance and we go back to all the factors that come into calculating what you're owed if you're terminated for cause and that were to be upheld by a judge for example then you may get nothing or you may get you know very little or at least maybe your bare minimum entitlements so it's generally there's a high onus i think for employers to establish that there's cause to terminate your employment it's very rare for the most part um so your again your alarm bells will want to be going off as soon as they say that but in this particular example uh if someone says to you they're letting you go for cause because you missed last month's sales quota even if that's true there is a high, high likelihood that there is no cause there. And again, this is just an example of an employer trying to perhaps skirt its obligations, avoid what it has to pay to you um, on the basis of this, you know, um, illegitimate for cause position. You know, it's not necessarily a good thing, of course, to miss a month of sales quota or miss a few months of sales quota. And that may, in fact, be a legitimate performance related concern. But that also doesn't mean there's cause and very likely won't mean there's cause unless you, for example, might have missed sales quota for 12 months running and, you know, your employers warned you repeatedly and given you all the tools to, to reach that target and you still fail to reach it. You know, that might be one rare instance where your employer could let you go. But again, there's got to be a lot of, uh, of record keeping there. There's got to be a lot of time that passes an opportunity to improve um, so yeah, in this particular case, uh, someone missing last sales quota, um, in all likelihood, they are owed severance just as though they were let go without cause. Yeah, it's interesting that part in there you mentioned kind of makes a difference is having that built up record. You know, maybe you've been told, maybe you've, like you said, given tools, maybe you've been on a performance improvement plan. They, they've done things mm-hmm. to get your work up to snuff. At that point, then they have much a much better chance as an employer, correct, uh, for yeah. letting you go for cause, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that will uh, further bolster their argument. But if you're an employee and you're in a situation maybe where an employer comes to you and says, we're not happy with your performance, and then maybe you are in that scenario where month after month they're having discussions with you, you know, hey, we're following up, you know, we're trying to work with you, trying to help you out, but your performance just isn't improving. And then maybe you do get written up. Maybe you get a warning, maybe you get a couple warning letters you as an employee are going to want to try to recognize these things happening as soon as possible because you might then realize that maybe what your employer is doing is building a case potentially for a cause termination to happen down the road. 
And a lot of times when an employee's performance is criticized um, or, or there's some sort of feedback given, um, you, as an employee, you'll want to examine that feedback. You want to make sure, first of all, that you agree with it. Because a lot of times employers might say, hey, you didn't meet last month's sales quota, but the quota was for you to reach a goal that was just so unrealistic and unattainable that it's kind of unfair for them to critique you for that. Or, or maybe the quota isn't that unreasonable, but your employer is somehow sabotaging you in a way that prevents you from reaching that sales quota. Um, so, so there's a lot of instances where maybe there's some feedback given, but you as an employee may want to say, well, hold up a minute. That's not quite fair. You know, either you're lying or, well, mm -hmm. it's not fair because of this. And so you want to kind of make yourself heard as an employee so that if you do find or see that your employer is trying to build a case against you, at least you have rebuttals or responses to each of those situations. Right. And then should your employer later on down the line actually decide to terminate you for that reason, they may have a lot less to rely on because, you know, for the past however many months, you might have been sort of poking holes at, the, you know, the feedback itself. And then it's going to be, again, much more harder for your employer to establish that case. So you don't want to just accept this feedback as, as the gospel and say, yep, you're right, I need to do better, if that's in fact not what the case is. Because later on, you know, uh, if a judge looks at that documentation, they might just assume, you know what, the employer was telling the truth, mm -hmm. they were doing what they could, and I think they've done everything they could. And then now all of a sudden, as an employer kind of screwed out of your, your potential severance there. Yeah. And with that, we'll take one final short break and get back into the show. Help at employmentlawyer.ca as well. We'll continue. This is the Employment Law Show. And we're back for a, a few more minutes. Of course, you can reach out to Chris and his team. How do you do it? one 821 5900 Email we'll go to in a bit is help at employmentlawyer.ca. And the website that's built free and anonymous just for you. There's tons of information about all the things and many of the things, at least, that we talk about on the show weekly. And also, as Chris and I both mentioned earlier on uh, today, the severance pay calculator used to be standalone. Now it's rolled into pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. It'll tell you in about 30 seconds what your severance should be. You just punch in some basic information and uh, you'll get a number at the bottom. There's also contact at the bottom of that if you want to carry forward. If not, you got the number in your head. It's good to have uh, with you and over 2 million people have used it. So feel free to take advantage for no cost at pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. We were talking about the termination pop quiz. Uh, my employer told me, Chris, they're terminating my employment, but they want me to continue working for them for several months because that's a lot of fun. Before my employment comes to an end, do I have to work there and feel all sheepish or can I just get my severance and get the heck out of there? Yeah, so there, there are generally a couple ways employers can handle a termination without cause. Uh, one way is they come to you and they say, all right, we're doing a restructure. Uh, we've unfortunately got to let you go and this is going to be effective immediately. And, and here's what we're willing to offer you in terms of termination pay or severance pay. And then there's other situations where an employer might say, okay, we've decided we're doing a restructure. We've got to let you go, but actually you're going to continue working here for a few months and then mm -hmm. that's going to be your last day. And then, you know, maybe a, an additional payments offered after the fact. Um, but in this particular situation, this particular question, what's happening is this employee is being given what's called working notice. Yep. Um, so again, the situation where you'll be told you will be terminated, but just not now. And so the employer essentially is asking you to kind of to work that period of time. There, there could be many reasons for this. They may want, uh, they being the employer, may want some time to find a replacement. Um, there might be some sort of a transition period 
where you know you might be downloading some of your responsibilities onto someone else who's going to take over after you leave. Um, so not to suggest that these things are done in bad faith necessarily, but this is definitely a situation that, that can happen quite often. And so um, I think if an employee looks at this and thinks, you know what, I don't really want to work here. Uh, I don't think this is very motivating knowing my job's going to come to an end. And I'd rather just you package me out, cut ties, we can all move on and go our separate ways. And I, and I can fully appreciate that sentiment. Um, a lot of times employers, I don't think, do this uh, working notice type situation for that reason, because there might be issues of self-motivation uh, or whatnot. Um, but you as an employee do have the option potentially, I'll say potentially, to leave. Um, unfortunately, you don't have the right to simply tell your employer this isn't what I'm agreeable to and I want to leave. Because if you're given, say, several months of a working notice period and you just want out of there and you go to your employer and you say, I want out of here, your employer is within its rights to say, okay, well, in that case, you're going to quit. You're going to quit during the working notice period. And then you as an employee would potentially forego any severance entitlements that you have. So you definitely want to talk to a lawyer before you say anything like that because that could completely uh, turn the situation 180 around and now all of a sudden um, your last day and, and your last day paid or, or whatever would be the day that you leave. Um, so so that's uh, one thing. Now, if, if you'd like, you know, depending on the circumstances, I think it's completely appropriate for you as an employee to approach your employer and, and see if they're willing to cut ties with you sooner rather than later. Uh -huh. um, you know, it's definitely been um, possible in the past from my experience where negotiations have happened and, you know, the employee or myself on behalf of the employee may approach the employer and just say, you know what, it's not very comfortable working these extra months. So can we work out some kind of a deal? Yes. So that can definitely happen. It's just that, unfortunately, your employer can decide if it wants to, to say, no, we'd prefer the working notice period. And, and you don't want to just cut ties at that point unless you know the risks and are prepared to accept them. So you might possibly say, you know, it, to your point, you know, if, if you're owed, say, six months severance or six months working notice, say, look, give me two months severance as a cash payment, and uh, you'll never see me again out the door. We cut ties. You could maybe negotiate something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. Again, you want to be mindful that, mm -hmm. um, especially if you're an employer, that you're always complying with at, the, at least the bare minimum entitlements that that employee would be owed, whether right. it's working notice or severance, because mm -hmm. there's actually situations where an employer could say to someone technically, you know, hey, we're giving you three years of working notice. And I know that's an extreme example, but then they would actually have to also pay you a certain amount of money afterwards. Because depending on your situation, there are certain amounts of severance pay that might be owed to you that the employer cannot actually uh, achieve or fulfill by giving you working right. notice. So I think that's yeah. one key point to remember. Um, but, but secondly, um, uh, working notice does ordinarily count towards severance. So if, for example, you're an employee and you've run the, the, the stats through the calculator and you've determined that you're owed, let's say, 12 months of severance and your employer comes to you and says, we're letting you go. We're, we want you to work here for three months. But after the three months, we're going to give you, you know, a nine month payout for, for, for any remaining severance that we owe you. Well, generally speaking, you would add the three and the nine, and then that's going to account towards a total package valued at around 12 months. And if that's what you're reasonably entitled to under common law uh, or according to the calculator, 
then, then that would normally satisfy the employer's goals. And I know a lot of people that I come across don't necessarily count the working notice period. They sort of they sort of decide uh, uh, of themselves, you know, my last day is June 2nd, um, but they were actually given six months notice and actually only think the package is valued at the amount of severance they're being offered as of June 2nd. Right. Um, but they need to understand that does count towards your severance. So um, yeah, definitely consult a lawyer in any case because sometimes these issues can be tricky. I will give you a minute, Chris, to answer this uh, one email yes. from Mo says, uh, my employers tell me that they're transferring many of my duties to a new employee because they're younger uh-huh, and have a fresh outlook. Can they do this and what are my options? Yeah, again, uh, we're going, uh, we were talking earlier about things employers probably shouldn't do or say. Right. And uh, being told that they want younger people and a fresher outlook immediately raises human rights bells. Uh, alarm bells. Uh, I actually had a situation not too long ago where my client was a creative director for a marketing agency and they didn't tell him that they wanted younger people, but they did tell him that they wanted a fresh outlook, that his ideas were outdated. And it, it can be it can be a bit tough getting into the weeds of all this as far as, okay, well, they didn't actually say he was too old, but you know, again, employers aren't going to be that dumb normally to say something just outright, you know, you're, you're yeah. too old for us. So if you're in that situation, we want someone younger, fresher outlook, immediately I'm thinking, okay, is this human rights going on? And then, of course, if I'm being terminated, I'm owed my severance in any case. So now you've got both of those items going on, and, and that could be a lot to deal with for your employer. But as an employee, you want to definitely canvas that because your entitlements could be huge. And reach out is the moral of the story. Do so anytime now that we are done for today. Chris is uh, number one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. help at employmentlawyer.ca for email. And the website again, pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. We'll catch you next time on the Employment Law Show.